For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. It was a moment in uh, fall ball when my head coach, Bob Milano, uh, pulled me off to the side and said, you're going to learn how to switch hit. And I was like, nah, you know, that didn't sound like a great idea. You you signed me to be a right-handed hitting shortstop for you. And he goes, I think you've got the athleticism. I think you can do it. And uh, being 18, a little bit too cocky, maybe at the time, I said, yeah, you know what? You're damn right. I can go out there and do that. And uh, I proceeded to work at it, and we played a fall ball schedule where I proceeded to go 0 for 50. I did not get one hit. The only bonus was I wasn't striking out a lot. I was actually making contact. I just didn't have enough authority to figure out how to get a hit. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto of Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Neil. I'm doing awesome. How about you, my friend? And I can't wait to talk to our guests because I love baseball. Oh, see, that's the, I didn't know that. Then I'm going to have to get you more and more baseball players. Our guest today is Jeff Bloom, former Houston Astro. Much more. I see the Montreal Expos on that list. So that'll be an interesting conversation. And he's a, now a podcaster as well as a sports analyst from with uh, Believe in Astros. Jeff, thanks for stopping by, man. Bye, man. How are you? Uh, good to be on. I feel underdressed. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just jump. Let's just jump specifically enough. He always outdresses me. I need to maybe beat, the, <laughs> beat that next week. Um, let's kind of jump into, did you always want to be a baseball player growing up? Um, yeah, I think I had the idea that I wanted to do something uh, athletically. I wasn't exactly sure what it would be, but, you know, as a kid, Halloween would roll around. I'd wear, uh, you know, pick a baseball uniform or wear my little league uniform around and uh, fantasize about being a, a big leaguer someday for sure. Mm -hmm. oh that is so cool and uh what was your first break you know to get in did you go up minors you go right to majors it oh man dude no it, it, i was one of the longer i wasn't the uh the mike trout or the uh shohei otani type i was more of the, the guy that had to grind a little bit and create my own avenues um but it was fun in doing so though because you know you learn a lot about yourself you learn how much you actually love the game but uh you know, I didn't, I didn't really realize, I think probably the first break I got was my, my junior year in high school, loved playing basketball, was freshman MVP, JV MVP. And I thought my next step was going to go to play varsity. And, uh, my varsity basketball coach pulled me off the side. He goes, if you want to be any good at this game, you're going to have to quit baseball. And I said, really, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was pretty good, but, um, just looking at my size, my athleticism, and uh, I, I said I appreciate the thought, but I'm gonna I'm gonna play baseball primarily, and that was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, because you always think is what's your size, Jeff? So that, that that you were a basketball player too. What what was your size? Oh, I was six foot three, about a buck sixty in high school, and I was I was stopped. I wasn't gonna get any taller. Um, I don't think I was going to get any faster, but I knew that, you know, my frame was going to filled out when I got a little bit older and that only meant that I would be slowing down. So it fit better for baseball. Okay. Uh, that's amazing. So what was your first break in the majors? Um, this is, sounds terrible. My first break was when Orlando Cabrera broke his ankle in 1999 and opened up a spot for me to get called up. <laughs> that was my big break. Wow. 
Oh, wow. And did you think it like in that process, the miners in that process to get to the final call up? That's a big thing, right? Especially now in baseball with the competition level and all going through this compared to other sports where you get drafted and you're going to go and play. But in baseball, that's not it. You go to the minors, you learn the process and then wait for the call up. Yeah. And, you know, even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was playing in the minor leagues, you know, there were, it was different. You had to really, they had an X number of at bats they wanted you to get in the minor leagues. X number of innings pitched before you could even be thought about getting into the big leagues unless you were that phenom. And uh, I had been working my way through the minor leagues. And actually, I was enrolled in classes for fall to go back to Cal because I thought that was going to be my last year in professional baseball. And, uh, you know, I'd been kind of struggling a little bit, had a good year that my last year in 1999 before I got called up. But at the same time, I was 25, 26 years old, and I was really like, you know, how is this going to look on a resume? I was kind of looking towards the – and I said, I'm going to put everything I can into this season, see what happens. Um, and at the same time, I enrolled in classes to go back to uh, Cal and finish up my degree. But lo and behold, I get called up on August 19th, 1999, and uh, turned myself into a, a valuable utility player, and I never got sent back down until I was uh, – officially retired in 2012. Wow, that's awesome. You know, you must have a couple of uh, really cool stories that pop out in your mind that you always like those defining fun stories or defining difficult stories. Either way, I'm happy to hear either one, a fun one or a difficult one or either, you know, in, in baseball. Well, you know what? I you know, I switch hit and call in uh in professional baseball, but I did not switch hit until I got to college baseball. And a lot of people are kind of floored by that because I learned how to switch hit when I was 18 years old in 1991 in Division One Pac-12 baseball, and uh, that wasn't the easiest thing to do. And three years later, I get drafted to play professional baseball. So I was only three years old as far as being a left-handed hitter. Um, a lot of people take that for granted and just assume, oh, this guy's been hitting left-handed his entire life. But it was uh, it was a moment in uh, fall ball when my head coach Bob Milano. Uh, pulled me off to the side and said, you're going to learn how to switch hit. And I was like, nah, you know, that didn't sound like a great idea. You you signed me to be a right-handed hitting shortstop for you. And he goes, I think you've got the athleticism. I think you can do it. And uh, being 18, a little bit too cocky, maybe at the time I said, yeah, you know what? You're damn right. I can go out there and do that. And uh, I proceeded to work at it. And we played a fall ball schedule where I proceeded to go 0 for 50. I did not get one hit. The only bonus was I wasn't striking out a lot. I was actually making contact. I just didn't have enough authority to figure out how to get a hit. And uh, after those 50 at-bats and after that fall ball schedule was over, I walked into Coach Bob Milano's office, and he was old school. He had the dip in. He had a chaw in one cheek. He had a cup of coffee and a cigarette. And he's just sitting there puffing, smoking, and spitting and uh, looks at me, and he goes, what do, you, what do you need to talk about, son? I said, well, I suck. And I go, I hate sucking. Uh, you know, I'm killing the team. I'm killing myself. And I go, what's, you know, what am I getting out of this? And he's like, well, he goes, you got two options. He goes, I appreciate you coming in. He goes, you got two options. He goes, one, you can continue to, to switch it because I still believe in you. And he goes, the second option is you stop and I pull your money. I take your scholarship away and you got to, you got to play it, pay on your own, or you got to leave. And I was like, well, mom and dad don't have the money. Uh, I'm going to have to figure this thing out. And I said, thanks for the talk coach. I'm going to, I went back in the cage for the next two hours that day <laughs> trying to figure it out. And by the end of that season in 1992, I was the starting shortstop for the California golden bears in the college world series. And then you fast forward to 2005, I hit the game winning home run in game three of the world series and guess which side of the plate I'm standing on when I hit that home run. 
left-handed. <laughs> so, I mean, this guy, he, he was my, uh, you know, he was that father figure I'd always been looking for. And he was that coach that always uh, found a way to encourage me. And uh, I, I thank him every day. He's got a big picture of it in his office of me hitting that home run. And I owe it all to him uh, for being able to teach me and convince me that I could go out there and hit left-handed. Uh, How was that follow, feeling? You know, that's all right. Real quick, real quick. Yeah. What, what was the mechanical change that you figured out, you know, for the left, you know, to make it happen? Which one should I tell you about? Because I, I turned into the Cal Ripken of left-handed swings. There was a uh, there was a famous Cal baseball player that played at uh, New, for the New York Yankees and had a rookie year where he hit 25 home runs. Name was Kevin Moss. And, uh, you know, big, strong guy was in a real squatted down position. So that was like my initial swing. I'm like, well, I'm going to swing like that guy. He went to Cal. He was good. He hit power. And I was terrible. It wasn't. An, and then I, I decided to stand up a little bit flatter bat. I made a lot of contact, slapped the ball around, um, figured out how to get hits. And this is back when I had speed too. But uh, it wasn't until 19, 1998. I had elbow surgery and was sent from AAA down to uh, West Palm Beach to play A-ball, kind of work my progression back uh, as far as rehab. But before I got on the field, I actually had a chance to sit in the cage and just take thousands of swings. And I had there was a hitting coach down there named Frank Kremblis. And he's watching, we're working, toiling away. And uh, he goes, have you ever thought about getting your hands away from your body? Because I'm a big guy. Um, and he goes, get your hands away from your body and kind of clear some space to let your hands move a little bit more freely. Um, that was one adjustment. All of a sudden I started to drive the ball and I developed a little bit of a toe tap to get my weight on my backside. And next thing you know, I'm driving the ball out of the ballpark, uh, finished 1998. Great. Go to big league camp in 1999, go to AAA, have a great year and get called up. And the rest is history. Wow. Awesome. You know, thinking about, you talked about the World Series, winning a World Series. Like, again, I'm, when you get the chance to interview all these players, being an analyst now, and talking to all your former colleagues in the in, in Major League Baseball, not many of them can say they're world champions, right? That's got to feel great. Yeah. It, it does feel great. You know, I, I, had a, I had a modestly good career, you know, that I'm beginning to realize, you know, now looking back on it at the time, it felt like a complete grind, but uh, I appreciate my opportunities. Um, but it's kind of funny. You walk around the ballpark a little bit and everybody, you know, you kind of get the, I know that guy works for the Astros, but what does he do? Who is he? And you kind of get the initial, oh, hey, nice to meet you. The next day when people actually go to Google or go to baseball reference and they see, you know, some of the stuff that you've done, all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, Jeff, nice to meet you. All Your street cred goes way up once they realize that you want to ring as a player. Wow. Two-part question. First is, you know, which which pitcher or or pitchers were you like thrilled that were going to be thrown at you that day? And, and which ones weren't you too excited about? Uh, the the worst are the easiest ones. Even though I, I I hit a home run off Randy Johnson, but I think that might have been my only hit off him. And he absolutely destroyed me uh, for obvious reasons, like he did a bunch of big leaguers uh, at the time. The other one was Kevin Brown. I thought that dude hated me for whatever reason. He was just, you know, ginormous you know, wore like a youth medium shirt when he pitched, was just huffing and puffing, sweating, growling. And uh, he would throw me 92, 93 mile hour split fingers and I could not figure it out. And uh, he he would destroy me. I was like two for 30 off of him. And then uh, on the other side, 
if uh, Jeff Supon was ever pitching, I knew I was going to play that day, whether it was in the playoffs or whether it was in regular season, I would look at our schedule. And if we were facing up against him, I knew every manager I had would put me in against him because I had just ridiculous numbers off him. <laughs> what would he say now by you telling that? Would he agree with you? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he would. I mean, it's hard to argue. I think I literally, I literally had about 30 or maybe 30, 40 at bats off him and hit 500 with like three home runs. Don't you wish that was your numbers the whole time, right? Yeah. 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 I might have my own podcast bigger than this, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, obviously, I'm from Boston, if you didn't know that. So, you know, the Red Sox near and okay. dear to my heart. Who, who would you rather uh, be up against, Pedro or Roger Clemens? Roger Clemens any day of the week. Uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't face – fortunately, I didn't face either of them all that much. I think I faced Pedro more, but I had the misfortune of facing Pedro during that 99, 2000, 2001 stretch that he was on where it, it was it was wiffle ball, Nintendo. You know, it was like video game type stuff that he was throwing up there. Um, as much fun as it is to compete against guys that are that good – it's it's a realization that they are that good. And that was probably the, the most fun I've had and the most horrifying times that I've had because I get questions like this all the time. What was it like facing Pedro in his prime? And he had four legitimate all-star pitches. And I remember my first time facing him, I, I was like, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to sit fastball away, and I'm going to adjust everything else. <laughs> Brutal. He, he buggy whips a fastball in there that I foul off, you know, then it's a curveball, then it's a changeup, then it's a slider, and then he takes speed off his fastball, and I'm going, what the hell's going on? So I eventually got to the point where I said, you know what? I've got one chance on one pitch, and it's the changeup. So literally, the rest of my career, I sat changeup on him every single pitch, and I actually got a couple of them, and I didn't miss them, thank God. But, man, all of his other stuff was just wicked, nasty. At least with Roger, you knew he was going to challenge you every once in a while with a fastball before you got to the split. But uh, Pedro Martinez was just – he was filthy in every sense of the word. Wow. Cool. It's interesting when people say – when you get to talk to players today, who, do they remember these players you're talking about? Are they – <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they understand it. They remember it. I mean, because of these household names – Compared to baseball today, you have some household big names, but not as many, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, the turnover is a little bit greater, you know, with these these shorter career spans, I think. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you see flashes of greatness, but it's the consistency that I think was back in those days. And it's kind of funny that, you know, all these guys that I'm around now and have the ability to talk to and they, you know, they'll get the guys that'll come up. Did you play against this guy? Did you play against that guy? What was it like, you know? And uh, they're just fascinated that all these guys that they've, you know, they've heard all of these stories about or watched the VHS tapes are all in that grainy, gross video that you watch and you're going, and was he really as nasty as he was? And I can confirm that, yeah, most of the time they were. Wow, that's just crazy. How about, you know, on the fielding side, you know, what's it like turning a double play in the in the majors? Is it like, like the first time you did it, was it awesome or? Yeah. Oh, man, it was a hell of a lot more fun than it is now with these slide rules that they have in place. Uh, you know, there was an art form to uh, turning a double play up the middle because you knew there was the ability to that somebody was going to come in and try and break your legs when you were turning that double play to to break it up. That's probably a term we don't use all that often is that a runner is trying to break up a double play because you can't anymore. You've got to slide straight into the bag. It's got to be clean. You can't go wide. Um, you know, there were plenty of guys that would go, wouldn't even be able to touch the base that were coming after us. But one of my favorite baseball cards 
is in Wrigley Field. I'm playing shortstop, and uh, Damon Buford's coming in, and I just turned the double play. I'm up in the air. You know, it's just this picturesque, you know, athletic move that I'm going, and, you know, Damon Buford's got his elbow up in the air, and he's trying to get to me. Um, but yeah, there was a certain, there was a certain art form that I think is lost now on those double plays where the guy can be a little more casual around the bag and set up for a better throw. Cause he doesn't have to worry about getting smoked by, you know, you know, some of these guys coming in. Not quite as exciting as it was when I was a kid growing up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I remember too. I love that part of it. I, I was like, Hey, it's part of the game. I got to <laughs> figure out how to do it. You know, that would, that's, that was the art of it. It was trying to avoid those, those collisions. So now life, when you decided life after baseball, were you ready? man no i don't know if you know this but i've got four daughters and uh so i was like okay as well as i've done i need to keep working <laughs> because <laughs> we colleges weddings and all the all the stuff that goes with the life because you know that that earning window that we have as ball players is very short and i knew that uh, i did well but not well enough to retire on it but i also love the game too you know i, I talked to a lot of my contemporaries that uh, had retired before me that I played with were that were still in baseball. I had guys that retired and were out of baseball and those guys that were out of baseball, some of them wanted to come back and they were having a hard time doing it. So through the process of just kind of talking to some people that I respected and that were still around the game, I said, you know, I need some advice. What are we doing? I know my career is coming to an end. Um, I want to be around the game and to a man, every single one of them said, if you want to stay in the game or if you want to be in the game, stay in the game. And that meant after retirement, you know, coaching, scouting, front office, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but media was an option. And so I went into that, uh, off season with the idea of getting prepared to have a job after baseball. And it just so happened that I got released from the Arizona diamondbacks in July of 2012. And I knew that was it. I was done. I didn't even try and call anybody to go get a job. So I was just like, man, my body's broken. I need, I need a break. And uh, they had a unique situation where they, they fired their television play-by-play -play guy. Their color commentator uh, had just been, believe it or not, arrested. I mean, I'll let you go back and do the investigation. I don't want to throw them under the bus because I love them. But they, they missed a couple. They lost their TV crew. So they were scrambling to put a group together. In September, they asked me, hey, we've got two open dates that we can't cover. Would you would you think about coming back and doing our color analyst? And I was like, you, well, I was like, first, I was like, you're still paying me, so I can, I can do whatever you want me to do. But at the same time, I was like, are you sure you want me to do this? Because I've never done it. And uh, they said, yeah, come on out, talk to my agent. He's like, this will be perfect. It's a demo reel. You'll get your feet wet, and we'll move on from here. So basically, those two games I did with Arizona in 2012 were my demo reel. They okay. were terrible. I was awful. Um, I, the greatest piece of advice I got in the booth was from Tom Candiotti. Did my first game. I uh, was looking through stats, notes, stumbling, bumbling, you know, trying to sound coherent, trying to say what I thought fans wanted to hear. Went terrible. The next day I showed up, Tom Candiotti came in and he's like, how'd it go? And I'm like, this is hard, man. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, well, what'd you do yesterday? I said, well, I had the notes. I had my stats i had this because you get you get so much information in the booth it's crazy he comes in and he looks at my desk i've got notes i've got my stat packs and he kind of takes his hand and literally grabs a trash can and just scoops it all in the trash can and i go i'm like bro what are you doing man I'm like i had highlighters all over this thing he's like he's like so what he goes well, what did you do for a living and i said play baseball 
He goes, what are you do? What are you watching when you're watching the game? And I go, I'm watching baseball. He goes, well, tell the people what you're watching. He goes, explain to them why a bad hop happened. Why did the pitcher throw that pitch in that situation? And that's when that light bulb kind of went off is like, that's my job. I've got to add color to the game and bring that to the fans at home. And that was a real turning point for me. And then luckily uh, I interviewed for the Astros job and I've had this job ever since 2013, but uh, that was, that was a big turning point for me in the booth. And how about you being at the, Oh God, Greg, another question. Go. Yeah. I was just going to ask you real quick. What what are some of the, the favorite plays that you called out that you can remember now, once you got that all figured out what you're doing? Oh man. Um, we, we've had a couple of, we had a, you know, combined no hitter in New York last year was unbelievable because I played in the, the last no hitter at, well, last no hitter thrown against the Yankees at home. I played in. And then last year on June 25th, the anniversary is coming up. I got to call the combined no hitter at the new Yankee stadium. So tying those two things together was pretty remarkable. Um, anytime your Don hits a home run, I'm losing my mind. Uh, those are the ones I remember we have, you know, we have division clinching games. Um, I've been in the uh, clubhouse as a player that celebrated. And then I got to be in there as a broadcaster and cover celebrations. Uh, those are just some of the ones that really kind of pop out early. Wow. That's really cool stuff for sure. And basically, why the podcast? So tell me about the podcast, (laughs) especially because you're doing the analyst. I think everyone needs to have a podcast now, as we're seeing. That is the form of medium that people want to consume more and more, especially because it's longer, not the sound bites that you get in baseball or Mm -hmm. kind of the entertainment value the ESPN gives versus really giving the behind the scenes, the things that you know and you could say and put your color into it, right? No, you're exactly right. Yeah, and I like this. I like the forum that you guys are going with right here, interviewing people. And I think that's actually one of my podcasts. We're going to shift in that direction and try and get a little more insight because you're right in the sense that everything that you're watching on TV is obviously programmed. There's, There's sound bites, there's timing, there's elements, sponsorships. There's so much production put into what you see on TV that sometimes it it's not watered down, but it's just kind of brief, you know, it's kind of abrupt at times where you kind of want to expound a little bit or give a little more insight or tell that colorful story. And you don't really get the chance to do that on, on live TV. So why not break it down and take your time to really unpack and unfold or really form an opinion. And I think that's where podcasting is great. And, you know, if anybody's listening to this, do it, it's cathartic. I mean, you get to, you get to talk to people, you get to, you know, say some crazy stuff and maybe say, I shouldn't have said that, or man, I really didn't know I felt that way kind of thing. Um, But it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, being on the Believe Network now with uh, Jeff Balky and talking more Astros and really kind of, it's helped me in my broadcast because it really, you know, he asks questions that maybe I don't think about, but it really kind of funnels everything through that Astro lens and kind of, you know, kind of helps you dig a little bit on some of those numbers and expand on what you saw that following week or what you expect to see the upcoming week. No, and I see when you're talking to people like in that way, you're able to really know you're not looking at that sponsor or that thing. You can really give your real true opinion mm-hmm. because there could be people in the back end when you're going to interview or you go in the back interview some of the players, you can't say certain things because it could come back po- politically. But then you have your own platform. You can say what you want to say. That's the big thing that, that goes yeah. back. You say yeah, one I, thing wrong or you say thing that might tick off listeners. It's your your podcast. You can do what you want to do. 
Yeah, because they're making the choice to tune in. They're actually tuning in to watch the Astros, <laughs> you know, instead of me. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. You don't need your notes or your uh, your stats cards with you either. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's a lot less prep. It's a little more coming straight out of, you know, that's kind of the beauty of it too, is it's kind of impromptu. And if you've got good enough guests and you're having that conversation, it'll spark some conversations that you don't need, you didn't even anticipate going. I know, like right now I'm going to ask you, I forgot to ask you about Mariano Rivera. What what was that like? You know, the closer. <laughs> Dude, man. Yeah, not good. Not, not good at all. And uh, be, having been a switch hitter and, uh, you know, I played on a team with Jose Cruz Jr., and that was maybe five years into my career and I was playing with Tampa. So we were, we were in the American league East. So that opened up the opportunity to unfortunately face him quite a bit. And I'd always gone up there left-handed. He breaks a bat every other at bat that I'm facing him because that cutter's coming in. I can't adjust to it. I'm grounding out the first base. I'm popping up to the left, you know, to left field. It's just, it's, it's a battle. And uh, I watched Jose Cruz jr. Go up there right-handed and he got a base hit. And I'm going, dear God, man, what are you doing? He's like, he goes, where's the cut? Where are you? He goes, how do you face him left hand? I go, he blows me up every time it gets jammed because that cutter was moving in. He goes, well, I didn't want that. So I'm going to go up there right-handed, have it move away from me and I'll just slap it the other way. And I was like, man, I didn't have the cojones to do that though. Um, I, I was, I, I couldn't do it, but I, re I respected the fact that Mariano was so good that he turned a switch hitter into a right-handed hitter against him. <laughs> and uh, the best at bat I ever had against Mario Mariano Rivera was in spring training and uh it was you know it's spring training so you're kind of like I'm gonna try something new uh if I don't get a hit here it doesn't matter because there's no impact but he threw me a cutter and I mean I was like I'm gonna open up I'm gonna get the barrel to this and hit it as hard as I possibly can and I remember I opened up and I smoked one into the camera well at like 150 miles an hour and it's just rattled pew, 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 pew. <laughs> The next pitch was a cutter on the outside corner and I hit it up the middle. I was like, dude, why didn't I do this like 10 years ago against this guy? <laughs> yeah, but he, he was really good. Uh, it sounds like he was good. When you faced a, a pitcher, did you have ever a fear when you, that you might get hit, especially ones never? No fear nope. ever? Nope. Nope. I think that, uh, I don't know how many, I mean, it, just for me personally, if, if that fear was in my mind, it was going to, it was going to hurt my at bat. I didn't want to go in there. I, I feared more that they were going to throw me a nasty slider curveball. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of getting hit. Nope. I mean, granted, I didn't play in an era like now where everybody's 95 plus miles an hour, but um, I really didn't have that fear of getting hit. No. Okay. All right. All right. Greg has a question. He asked every one of our celebrity guests. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, this is an important one. This is for me to help me get better. I hope I'm ready. And for everybody that that listens, um, what do you think is the most important thing that you've ever learned in life? Man, getting deep. Um, probably the most, the the best. I mean, there's a couple of them, but the best piece of advice, and this probably works now that I'm older too. Um, it was. It might have been nineteen. It might have been. It was either. I think it was 1999. That year, I got called up. But uh, I, I had been playing, I, tr I tried to play a little bit of third base and it wasn't going well. I kept making errors and, and uh, moved back to shortstop, made a couple more errors. And there was just this, this frantic feeling on the field for me because a lot of people don't realize how fast baseball is actually moving when that ball is put in play. But uh, my manager, Jeff Cox, pulled me aside and just kind of said, 
you know, you've got more time than you think. And I, my immediate re reaction was bullshit. I'm like, this guy's running a four second, you know, uh, speed down to first base. This guy just, he's got this crazy hop coming off the lip. If I don't catch this clean and I, if I drop it, I got to freak out and throw this thing. He's like, you've always got more time than you think. And immediately the game slowed down for me. And all of a sudden I took a better route to the baseball. I started to get better hops. I was a little more keen to, to seeing the ball into my glove, making the exchange and making the throw and throwing guys out by two steps now. And all of a sudden I'm going, damn, dude, thank you. But now that I'm out of the game and I watch our kids on phones, I watch, uh, you know, how these games are reacting. And I'm like, everything's coming at us through a fire hose 24 seven, but you've got more time than you think you will be okay. If you fail this test, ask the teacher if you can retake it or what do I have to do the next time to not fail that test? And now that I'm in my, you know, I just, I just turned 50. I'm going, man, my time's running out when in actuality, it's not, you know, we've got podcasts, we've got, <clears throat> I've got a platform. I can talk to my kids. I can direct them. I can slow things down and I don't need, I have to have these knee jerk reactions. And I think that's probably the best advice I've ever gotten. I still use it to this day, even when I'm having an argument with my wife or I'm trying to correct my kids, take a step back. I don't have to answer this right now. I don't have to fix it right now. And then I'm just going to take my time and we'll, we'll work it out from there. But uh, you've always got more time than you think. And it's hard this day and age with as fast as this world's moving. Excellent advice. Thank you. That's advice yeah. I'll have to think about too, Greg. That was really great advice. The best place we people can listen to the podcast is where, Jeff? It's on all major platforms, but we're on the Believe uh, Net Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V. Um, I know that we're on all those major platforms, you know, from Apple to Spotify and uh, that kind of stuff. And of course, uh, watch every Astro game you can. I'll be on there. All right. We appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks again. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. All right. That was Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto. Greg Hanagast. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited again for a celebrity co-host like my friend, David Hollenbach, Hollenbach Leadership. David, thanks for co-hosting again. You know, we've had some pretty interesting guys on, but I know you love musicians, don't you, David? Oh, yeah, man. This one is a great one. This is, uh, you know, some have said that this is like the next Stevie Ray. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Vaughn, Stevie Ray Vaughn, Johnny Winter. I mean, you know, we're we're getting to talk to him when he's he's young, passionate, full of energy, full of life. And and man, th this uh, I, I'm, I've really been looking forward to talking to this guy. So, um, you know, for all you listening, this is uh, Houston, Texas based blues rock guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, Clay Melton. Thanks for joining us, Clay. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. So um, you're in Houston right now, right? Yes. Uh, it, uh, yeah. It kind of looks like you're in a recording studio there. <laughs> I'm actually um, <clears throat> right now uh, uh, kind of outside of Houston, my dad's place. He's got a barn out here, and uh, my house is in process right now with some renovations, so I'm kicking it out here, kind of out of the sticks. So got got my piano with me and some gear. That's about all I took from the house. So how how do you feel about you know people comparing you to Steve Ray and Johnny Winter and all that? Uh, you know, I mean, all those uh, we all use comparisons. You know, when we're thinking talking about music or when we find out about new music, 
and it's definitely flattering, but mostly just makes me feel like I need to practice <laughs> and go, go sit down somewhere with my guitar, you know, cause it, it is flattering when it's artists that I look up to and things like that, you know? Yeah. And uh, what does that mean for you in your career being compared to those? That's, that's gotta mean I better really step it up and be really motivated to go as far as I can. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, comparisons don't bother me because it, it never changes uh like like some people may uh let it bother them but it doesn't change what we're going to do when it comes down to writing music or what we're performing you know it's just if anything it's another you know ingredient in the pot but definitely there's that feeling of like all right we need to show up then if people are throwing around you know comparisons like that i, I i'd like to dig a little deeper into like maybe who some of your influences are and and I mean, geez, how long have you been playing? Because I mean, you're you're phenomenal. You know, I've I've read a couple of things that uh, you know compare you to like a, a prodigy. Um, you know, how, how long have you been playing? Uh, round about uh, almost sixteen years. Let's see, I've been performing out live for half of my life now for fifteen years, and. Um, and so, you know, it's been it's been what I love to do since I was in in middle school is really when I started playing out live. Um, and that aspect of everything was where, you know, my early influences started with Hendrix and Stevie Ray and ZZ Top, these artists you can't play guitar or live in Texas and not listen to. Um, <clears throat> but then, like, it really stemmed back to a lot of their earlier influences. Uh, Buddy Guy was an early, more traditional blues favorite of mine. Um, and then I like players like Wes Montgomery, more on the jazz side. Um, and so all these classic styles are, I was around pretty heavily as a, as a young player, but when I got to get out and start playing live, that's where everything, my love kind of grew deeper for doing all this. And also like, uh, it's like a, just a real time lesson whenever you're in a live environment, you know, what the crowd interacts with or what they respond to or what they, you know, when they leave to go get a drink at the bar. And so that's kind of, you know, been a huge teacher as well. Wow. And so that's the the thing of experience. Who have you learned from to become better at what you do? Um, you know, early on, it was I was lucky that Houston had a really healthy uh, music scene and they still have a great music scene. But for my particular uh, musical upbringing, really, um, I was welcomed by these older players in the Houston community, uh, band leader Congos uh, by Carlos, uh, Carlos Johnson was a band leader that gave me some of my first opportunities on stage, uh, playing at, you know, local spots in Houston. And, you know, that's where I learned where, how to shut up on stage, how to listen and share the stage and, you know, and just, uh, you know, really pay attention to what's happening around you musically. And so I was thankful to have like a lot of old, much older mentors when I was growing up. And I think that's important for younger players too, or anybody getting into, you know, doing music in front of people. Yeah. I mean, you've shared the stage with, with Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Sir Earl Toon of Cool and the Gang, Chris Daughtry, Robert Cray. It, you know, you're, you're doing these tours and actually you're ramping up for your 2023 tour. Um, who are you touring with? And, you know, since you started, who, who would you say you've enjoyed sharing the stage with the most? Oh man, that's a, that's a, 
lot, a lot, of, lot to go through there on that question. A lot of experiences. <laughs> I, Sir Oltoon was a special one because um, he, he's a special person uh, on and off the stage. And so getting to meet, we, meet with him and spend time with him, you know, um, I learned a lot. You know, his mentor was Otis Blackwell that wrote songs like Fever and all these, you know, hugely legendary songs. And so um, just spending time around songwriters like that is a huge lesson in itself. So then, like, when we played with Grand Funk Railroad, who are, you know, rock and roll legends, I consider, um, you just learn, even just by watching the way that they interact with the crowd from the first downbeat to the last song, and just how they really, you know, connect with an audience. Um, you can just tell they've been doing it for, for decades now, and that they, they're masters at their craft, you know. Okay, and so from the, I, I think, David, you were asking the next question, part of that question, right? Did he answer everything? Yeah, like so. You're you're getting ready to go on tour, or have you started touring yet? Uh, yeah, we uh, you know, uh, that's you did ask how, who we've been playing with now. And last year, we really did a lot of sport tours. We supported Des Rocks out of New York City, the Blue Stones out of Canada. Uh, this year, we're mostly doing headlining dates. Uh, we're, we've done about a month and a half on the road uh, this spring and uh, beginning of summer. Uh, just been home for a couple of weeks and we're about to head up back out um, for another, you know, I think we have probably, I'd say, 30 more days on the road in the upcoming weeks. Um, so it's it's going to be, a, it's a lot of work, but it's great because we're also in a writing phase and getting to try out new material in front of crowds, which is usually, you know, educational for us when we're in this, those kind of beginning stages with material. So what kind of crowds do you play in front of? How big are the crowds for each one of your events? Or uh, we right now we've been playing uh, we've been playing festivals, which you know are festival size depending on the time slot and stuff like that. Like we played Baton Rouge Blues Festival last month, and that had a great audience. And then we're doing theaters and clubs. You know, theaters around you know uh, five hundred to a thousand, clubs more like you know two to four hundred. Um, so it varies, you know. And I still. You know, even if I'm just going out uh, for a night in Houston um, by myself or with some friends, I love going to a dive bar and seeing an act that's great, killing it in a small club. You know, I love intimate environments. So it does the same, like, performance-wise, too. Um, I enjoy all of them kind of in different ways, personally. All right, David, next question. Do you, uh, do you have any dates coming up in Central Florida? Um, I'm asking for myself. Yeah, I know we are. Um, we got five or six dates we're uh, announcing soon up in um, in October, I believe. We're in Florida. I know we're in Ormond Beach, um, Del Rey Beach, um, and then working around maybe Orlando and trying to hit some other uh, cities on that same run. Nice. Yeah, Ormond is only like forty-five minutes from where I'm at, man. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be watching what you do because. Uh, I definitely, after listening to your music and, and reading about you, um, I'm definitely a fan. So, yeah, this cool, is man. cool, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, come out. We'll, uh, we'll buy you a beer. All right. So, Clay, basically, what is your goal? Where do you want to see yourself in music? What do you want to accomplish? You know, 15 years, but yes, you have a long way to go to go where you want to come. Do you have, like, huge goals for yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I just like any other artist, I want to play as many places to as many people as we can, you know, new experiences, new destinations. To me personally, the kind of the fundamental goal that I've always cared about is 
being able to self-sustain, being able to just create music the rest of my life and be able to support that by playing music live, you know, and continue to make records. We're really excited. We haven't announced the full project, but we're going to be going down to uh, Barranquilla, Colombia to work with our producer we've known for a long time uh, who used to live in Austin, but moved back to his home down in Colombia and has set up a studio. So that will be our next album experience. We're going to bring in some local Latin percussion and, and brass and stuff like that. And so that's kind of our, our next endeavor. That's a little bit loftier of a, you know, goal to accomplish, but, um, but, you know, changing up the experiences musically is what keeps all this exciting too. So our goal is to keep playing, keep riding. All right, Clay, best place people can find information on you. Where can they go? Yeah, it's uh, claymelton.com for tour dates, tickets, merch, store, all that. And online, all the social media, it's uh, Clay Melton Music. What do you think the biggest challenge is for you to sell merch and then also online sell merch? As far as, you know, I mean, there's just no replacement. Merch is either cool or it's not. People either buy it or, or they're just like, yeah. I got one of those or something like that. We try not to do too many black concert t-shirts because everybody's got a million black concert t-shirts in their closet already, you know, <laughs> including myself. Um, so, you know, just trying to keep fresh designs and, uh, and get in front of people, obviously. Online, it's a little bit more, you know, just like the show marketing, it's a l there's a little more tricks to it, right? Um, you got to get kind of clever with your marketing. At the show, it's, you know, it's uh, put up or shut up. You know, people either dig it or they don't. This, big festivals, do you do wall merch sales? The festivals are great. Um, yeah, especially because they're usually short, shorter sets right. uh, for all the performers. So if people dug it, then they're usually left one and a little more, and we end up getting to talk to them over the merch table, you know? I remember the merchandise tables of a former professional wrestler when I was in the independence, and we some of the shows I did, I did 2,000 in merch, where yeah. I only got paid – a hundred bucks to show up. I got two, two, did two grand in merch. So I know how much merch is important. And then the bigger the crowd, the better opportunity in merch if you kill it, right? hundred percent. So what do you think is the, the thing now? Is it That's why people tour now more than, because you don't make any money off the music as much anymore. It's more merch and going and getting paid to the venue, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, music, the monetary value of a song is, you know, pretty much kaput. Um, you know, unless you're talking big licensing. So it's all about ticket sales and merch, which is, you know, is why when people ask, how can you best support artists? Say, get out, go to a show, you know, even if you can't afford to buy merch or whatever, you know, just like seeing people at the shows and being able to spread the word that way is still, you know, fundamentally the best way to support artists. And what about, here's an idea for you. When are you guys doing an NFT? Have you done an NFT yet? We haven't done the NFT yet. You got to do the <laughs> NFT because you know what they were saying? Craziest thing came out. I was listening to a podcast about Web 3.0. 90% of the money for NFTs goes to creators versus Spotify that has six, you know, how many people are trying to make money on stream? Podcasters, all these different things. That the yeah. money is in Web 3.0. So you have to figure that out because if you could be one of the first, you yeah. can do it. So something to think about. It's, there's talks about it. There's there's a lot of people spinning the gears on how, how can we make this, you know, something that it really, in my mind, it's uh, getting the consumer market to look at it as a way that they want to consume music. And then, you know, artists will be putting their, putting their, um, all their media, you know, into well, think about some NFTs for your like albums. That. And so that then they yeah. know you own it. Then NFTs for 
your, your ticket sales, uh, NFTs for signed T-shirts. There's just so much out there. It's crazy. So then think about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it, Clay. All right, thanks, David. All right, that, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Lenise Herman Thomas. She's the co-founder of Veganhood, a 100% plant-based 50-seat restaurant in Harlem, New York. This spring, Lenise, with her co-founder, Janine Smalls, reached their one-year anniversary, surprising many skeptics who didn't believe in their vision of bringing a vegan twist to soul food and Caribbean favorite dishes. Veganhood is a very popular restaurant, making several top lists as all of their customers eat for a cause, as a portion of Veganhood profits is donated to the 501c nonprofit they co-founded together in 2017 called Young at Excellence Society, an organization providing innovative after-school programs and a summer camp. Lenise is an inspiring entrepreneur and is proud to have a social impact mission that is making a difference in their community. Welcome to the show, Lenise. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, so tell me a little bit about Veganhood. Uh, it's in Harlem, New York. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker at heart. That's where I was born and raised. So I love hearing stories of businesses that prop, uh, crop up there. Um, are you from New York? And what, you know, what drew you to, the, to create your own restaurant? And then what drew you to do it in Harlem? Okay, so uh, Veganhood is in Harlem, New York. It's on uh, Restaurant Row, which is 114th and Frederick Douglass Boulevard. Um, what drew us to create Veganhood in Harlem is because this is where we live. We've, uh, we're we're uh, New Yorkers. We've been New Yorkers all our lives, born and raised here. And um, Harlem was the best place to put Veganhood because it is the mecca of all things. Like Harlem is just like a big statement, you know, for uh, New York, for New York City. Um, everyone comes here. We're full of food. We're full of fashion. We're full of culture here in Harlem. And um, something that we saw that was lacking was a vegan twist to our traditional things that we eat. Um, Veganhood came about during the pandemic. Um, just the crazy thing, we didn't plan on having Veganhood. Um, our nonprofit, which is Young Excellence Society, again, which is a 501c3 um, not-for-profit, we are youth-based. And um, during the pandemic, we were facing closure because we uh, were not seeing the funds that we usually see to keep the doors open. Uh, we became an essential work, workers place, right? So a lot of our parents for our program worked in hospitals. Some of them was police officers, some worked in restaurants. And those are the places that during the pandemic, even though New York City was shut down, those things were still operating. They didn't have anywhere for their children to go. 
from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. You know, school was virtual. So if you're at work, who's watching your kid? What safe haven? What place do you have for your child to uh, still engage uh, while the world is going crazy? We have we know we know we don't know what's going on. You know, um, how am I going to be at work and I have my child here and I like it's just it was so much. So we knew that we needed to be able to keep our doors open. Uh, Janine and I have been vegan for a few years and uh, we knew that this uh, virus was something that attacked your immune system. And we know, we, we knew that just by changing the way you eat, the things that you consume uh, can help combat this virus, you know? Uh, so we were like, hey, let's start selling uh, our, the teas that we drink. Let's start that we mix ourselves. We make these things with um, herbs ourselves, like, um, like um, soursop, burdock root, all of these different um, herbs um, and sell these things to, to our community to help them um, better themselves as well as keep our doors open. We did that. And um, that was a word of mouth thing. And it went super crazy. We said, what else could we do to help our community and help keep our doors open? So we started to sell the food that we cook at home for ourselves. And within five months, that one thing that we did in our ghost kitchen here at our um, nonprofit, we, we literally took our kitchen, our staff kitchen and turned it into a commercial kitchen. Literally in five months, we grossed six figures and we were only open three days out of the week. Three days out of the week from 12 to seven, we were able to keep our doors open, pay staff to be here. And it blew our minds by partnering with Grubhub and DoorDash um, and, you know, and Uber Eats. We literally had received over 100 orders in one day and had to shut our machines down because it was crazy like we didn't we didn't we had no idea that veganhood would have been such a success and that's that it was such a need like we knew there was a need but we didn't know it was a need like this like it was super crazy that's incredible you know when when businesses are shutting down because of the pandemic and yours is actually thriving uh because of the pandemic um what do you what do you think kind of was like the magic sauce that made veganhood popular? Do you think were people buying it because they knew that um, it had uh, you know it, immune boosting properties? Is that how you were marketing it, or was it because it was you know the excitement and the passion because you know the people who were working the program and just getting the word out? What do what do you what do you think was kind of the the catapult that made it get so big? Well, you know what. Um, when we first, when we first opened Veganhood and it became so popular, everyone didn't even know that it was a cause behind it. You know, we knew it was a cause. We were such a small team that we weren't able to get that word out there like that. Um, so we know it was the taste of the food. We knew it was the fact that people had never tasted nothing like Veganhood's food that had no animal no, no dairy, none of that in it. How is it possible for a uh, chicken, fried chicken to taste like animal? And it's not, you know, like how is it, how are we able to take this Caribbean dish of oxtails and there's no 
animal in it? Like, how is it that you're able to make empanadas and the meat in it is not ground beef? You know, so the taste- You're making me hungry, by the way, because it sounds really good. <laughs> yes, yes. So the taste alone, the taste itself is what sold veganhood. Like, you know, the familiarity for people to be like, oh my God, this reminds me of when my grandmother used to make this, or this reminds me of when my mom or even yourself, like, oh my God, I can't believe there's no, there's no dairy inside this macaroni and cheese. This is crazy. Like, how are you able to, 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 to capture this, this taste in something that I've ate, I've eaten all my life uh, one way and now you made it a different way and it, it and, and it, and it's so similar, you know, um, a lot of our customers, uh, were vegans, you know, and then a lot did, you know, I'm going to tell you what surprised us was the amount of customers we received that weren't vegan, you know, um, I think it was definitely a part of the, okay, I'm, a, I'm, I'm scared of what's going on. And, um, by me introducing this uh, other way of eating, this new way of eating, and it tastes good, I'm gonna do it. You know what I mean? So uh, we all we're always surprised to see how many non-vegans eat at our restaurant, like once a week. Like we have repeat customers that are not vegan that come enjoy the atmosphere and enjoy the food, and they've now made it a part of their lifestyle to wean in eating vegan food. Well, because everybody everybody wants really good food and everybody loves right. comfort food, right? And if you right. can eat it in a way that's healthy and it's boosting your, boosting your immune system, like who wouldn't want that, right? Who doesn't want, like I, I'm lactose intolerant. I can't eat macaroni and cheese, but right. if it's non-dairy, I'm going to eat a big bowl of it, right? Exactly, <laughs> it's, exactly. Yeah. So many in our community, so many uh, sicknesses and diseases that we have is from our gut, you know, and it's the things that we consume. We don't take the time to think about the chicken or the cow. We're eating their stress. We're eating the cancers that's inside of them. Like when, when, when these animals go to slaughterhouses and things of that nature, they know they have a brain. You see them cry. You see the, you, you see the emotion is, you know, stress and we're eating that so you're taking on all of the stress and all of the sicknesses and diseases that this animal had you, you're eating it and it's just being deposited in your body so you, you know we're seeing a you see a lot more of children and adults uh dealing with depression so much like you no one never thinks about the underlying issues like where did this come from you know like like, where did this come from? And everything that we do has to deal with what we put in our bodies. I Absolutely. I always say healthy food equals healthy mind, right? And, and it's the opposite because if you're eating, if you're eating unhealthy foods, right, you have reactions, uh, physical yeah. reactions, you have uh, mental health reactions, right? So it could bring on depression, it can bring on anxiety, it brings on all these, these uh, mental issues. And then it's the opposite. So when you're feeling healthy mentally, you treat yourself better and you eat healthy. But when you're not treating yourself, you know, when you're not, when you're in a state of depression, you want to eat foods that are unhealthy for you. And it's a vicious cycle to get out of. But if you can jump onto a healthy cycle of what you're putting in your body, 
and how you're thinking. And it just, it becomes a much healthier cycle for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you think, um, how were the kids, were the kids involved at all? Um, I know the profits go to this nonprofit, but were the kid, did the kids participate or do they participate today in any of the activities of the restaurant? So the kids, uh, we've before we before we've had the uh, before we got the restaurant um, before the pandemic even came about, we've always had um, our health is wealth um, portion of our program, um, and we focus on that in the summertime when we're able to take the kids to Whole Foods and places like that, have them read the labels on foods. Um, we have um, a, a breakout uh, session where we introduce new fruits and different things like that. Um, to our children here at the program. And uh, we, we give them, each one of them, uh, a small stipend that they get to go into um, these supermarkets and pick out healthier snacks and things of that nature so that they are um, supplementing some of the sweets that they eat with things that are healthier, you know, that have similar tastes and things of that nature. Um, that's something that now we want to, we're working towards having that be a part of our year round as not only the summertime, you know, um, because we are academic based program um, and we operate during the school year, um, we have very limited time during the day uh, with our kids to, you know, get them out to places because we focus on their homework. We want, we're, we're like the third, the third prong. I can't, we like yeah. to say the Holy Trinity. This is something that we say. <laughs> So it's the it's the the parent, the school, and then the after school. So you know, like we're the support system, and um, we want to make sure while mom and dad is at work that when they come and pick up their kid, they don't have to worry about their child um, homework being done, being completed accurately. Um, the kids are uh, reading, and we're building the confidence that they need uh, to be able to go out in the world. So when their parents come and pick them up, all they got to do is take them home give them their baths and feed them, you know? So we're trying now to work, uh, work out where one day out of the week, out of the five day school week, where we are um, doing more on our health and wellness program. So that this is something that will just be, you know, a, a staple in our program. I love that. I love that you're educating the kids at such a young age about food and taking them to the grocery store and reading labels. Like that's, that's amazing because- They love it. They love it. I'm sure because they're, they feel like they have a, a, a say, they have control over what they can eat and that, you know, makes them feel like a grown up. probably, you know, they get to go to the store and pick out the get food. They little cart, they put their little basket on their arm and then they're in the fruits and vegetable aisle. We teach them on, uh, when you go into a supermarket, the, the, the outer perimeters are the healthier, the healthy per perimeters. Because then once you start going into aisles, that's where all your processed foods are, you know? So we teach them how to, navigate in a supermarket and where your healthy options are that's incredible i love that you know the, they don't teach you anything in school anymore about food and healthy foods and the foods they serve you in school is just hideous honestly yeah. and then and the old food pyramid doesn't even apply anymore like Absolutely. that should just be tossed out wow that's great so tell me a little bit about um how has this changed your life? You've definitely changed the community around you. That must feel amazing, right? You have such a great purpose and what you're doing for your community, both the parents and the kids and, and all your customers. How has it changed your life? 
Well, you know, it, it, it's changed, uh, it's changed my life, um, a lot because I'm not only focused on the health of my household and my family, uh, we're, we're focused on being able to, uh, be the person on the, the soapbox saying, Hey, we got something for you to try. We're not forcing you to, to come this way, but we want you to think about this. Try this, you know? Um, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's given us a whole new uh, purpose, you know? Like we're, we're, we, we've always um, led our lives um, with, with purpose. You know, we've always uh, wanted to be um, educating and informing people about things. So now it's just, it's, it's, it's heightened that for us now. You know, um, and we're super grateful for it. We love it. We love that we're able to uh, be a voice um, in our community and 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 be able to help change the lives of so many people in our community and beyond. Like our goal is to um, have veganhood all over the world. Like we want to be able to um, let people know, hey, you can. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.